From ThatShelf.com, this is Black Hole Films. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. What's a black hole film, you ask? Well, you know those films you always meant to get around to watching, but you never did for whatever reason? Well, that's what they are. And this podcast is all about embracing them and checking those films off our lists and talking about them and whatever else happens to come up. I'm Canadian filmmaker Jeremy Lalonde, and I will be your host. You can follow me on Twitter at LalondeJeremy, or check out my website, JeremyLalonde.com, for more information on me and my projects. If you like the show, please subscribe to it, rate, review it, and leave a comment on whatever platform it is you're listening. It really does make a difference in helping to get more ears tuning in. And if you like this show, check out the others on the ThatShelf.com family of podcasts. And without further delay, let's get into this week's film. This is episode 145, and I'm by myself. This is going to be another one of my big deep dives. Now I'm tackling the uh, Ingmar Bergman Cinema Centerpiece 2, uh, and that comprises of... Give me a second. I'm just going to pull up the list. Uh, the Seventh Seal, The Devil's Eye, and All These Women, Sawdust and Tinsel, The Rite, The Magician, The Magic Flute, After the Rehearsal, The Touch... And the serpent's egg. Uh, so all in all, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten movies in this centerpiece. I'm about halfway through this giant Criterion box set now. And of these films, the only ones I've seen, I have seen The Seventh Seal, which I'm about to watch. And uh, I believe I've seen The Serpent's Egg, too. I think it was in a box set that I had. So, yeah, I'm fascinated to, to jump in. I watched The Seventh Seal. I've seen it probably twice, but it's been a long time. It's a movie that we watched in, uh, in a philosophy class in film school. And then I think I tried it again um, when I got the, uh, my original DVD criterion of it. But definitely I find uh, that Bergman is a filmmaker that grows on me more and more as I get older. And I really enjoy his work. And I see more in it the more I've lived life and had children and been in a, in a, in a long-term relationship. Uh, so revisiting these movies is really uh, beneficial for me. And Seven Seal in particular, I think, just in terms of its uh, visual and iconography, is definitely one of those films people think of when they think of Bergman. They think of you know death playing chess. I think it's definitely one of those uh, images that is evoked from it. So, yeah, I'm excited to check this out. Also, the disc on here has got some interesting things. It's got a documentary called Bergman Island, which I'll, I'll probably check out at some point. Um, uh, but, yeah, so come right back. I will be talking about The Seventh Seal. So I just finished The Seventh Seal. It's still, it's so great. I mean, this is definitely Bergman's probably most famous film, the one that people know him for or have heard or is more of a household name than any of the others. Um, and it's said to, uh, Bergman said that it's, it's definitely one of his own personal favorite films that he made, it has been said. And a film that I guess cured his, uh, his crippling fear of death to some extent. He, uh, he kind of got over it by making this. You know, the whole film is, is about death. It takes place during the plague. And it's interesting because this time in film history, we've got a bunch of, 
of movies around this time. This is the late 50s, where there's so many films about apocalypses and holocausts and plagues. I mean, you've got Kiss Me Deadly, The End of the Affair, Night of the Hunter, Night and Fog, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Godzilla, uh, The Ten Commandments. You know, we, we, the, the world is kind of interested in this at this point. And Bergman himself is coming out of a, a huge slump. You know, he apparently had written this script uh, and then it was rejected. And he kept on rewriting it five times. And it wasn't until Smiles of a Summer Night came out and was in Cannes in 1955 that people really started to take him seriously and let him do what he wanted to do. And so this comes out in 57 and just lights the world on fire. And then he follows this up, uh, you know, right after with Wild Strawberries. And that just cements his place as a, as a person to pay attention to coming out of Europe. You know, what I really love about it is just like, it's it's also the first time Max von Sydow has worked with Bergman. He's only 27 when he makes this movie. Um, I can just imagine watching this for the first time in the 1950s. You know, it's just, it's just filled with symbolism and this bizarre wit. Uh, and then there's also just like this, this kind of uh, love to religion that's in it. Even though Bergman himself was just like constantly just you know, God forsaken and, and just trying to figure out how he felt about religion and whatnot. It's one of his pre- prevailing themes. And so it's, it's interesting that it kind of plays both sides. And, and Bergman's not interested, at least in my opinion, in just, you know, casting religion aside. He wants to explore it. He's trying to figure this shit out. And that's what's interesting about him as a filmmaker to me, and this film in particular, is that Bergman's really... Just exploring and playing with these concepts. He doesn't have a firm grasp on it. He's trying to figure it out. You know, I love... There's so many great things. There's so much fun and uh, and wit to this movie. As I said, there's so many great lines. I mean, a lot of these scenes are played almost as comedy. You've got that great scene when the one actor uh, fakes his own death only to be killed a moment later by death himself, who uh, who cuts down his tree. You know, there's such great... Just that itself, cutting down someone's tree. You know, uh, the, the iconic imagery of, of playing chess with death, which has, like, been lampooned in Bill and Ted's bogus journey and whatnot. You know, there's so many great scenes and moments. I didn't take notes while I was watching it. I wish I did. Um, but, you know, this this is the time in history, uh, the, the, the time the movie is taking place. And apparently uh, Bergman was inspired by Kurosawa's period films and what made him want to do that with this story. Uh, but there is a plague going through, and so having it set place during then makes makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, this is a really I love this movie again, and it was it was really happy to rewatch it. Um, I uh, it was a great one to to kick off this centerpiece with because it was the kind of like coming home and 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 rediscovering you know a loved friend. Uh, I, this is definitely a film I will, re- will revisit again. And when my kids get older, it's something that I'll, I'll watch with. I, I'll, I'll try to show them anyway. I wonder how they'll take it. It'd be interesting. Uh, it's definitely not the kind of film that they're used to. It's it's playful. It's artful. It's um, It's got a linear story for sure, but it's also just kind of like a giant poem in a weird way. Yeah. Uh, I highly recommend it, uh, unless you just hate arty films, which case you might not dig it. But if you want a film that makes you think about life and death and kind of like some of your own feelings on mortality, then, you know, there are a few that are as good as this one. That's for sure. All right. So next up, 
Next up will be a, uh, a double bill of two films that I have not seen. Uh, I don't think. I might have seen The Devil's Eye. I don't know. If I do, I don't remember it. So the next up uh, is The Devil's Eye and another film, All These Women. All right. So I just finished uh, a double bill of Bergman comedies. The, there was The Devil's Eye and All These Women. And I was actually able to watch these back to back, which is not often the case with these movies. Uh, it, it, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, Bergman's not a guy known for his comedies. Uh, and here's two of them made in, in 60 and 64, respectively. Uh, and, and it's interesting because the first film in this centerpiece is Seventh Seal. And I think Seventh Seal has some real comedy in it, you know? Uh, a Bergman's friends apparently said that uh, he was quite the joyous fellow, so it was always a surprise to them that he made such sad uh, and reflective films. But he's got a sense of humor about him, and you see it. There's, there's a darkness that comes out through dark comedy and a lot of things and a lot of ironies. Uh, and just his wit is dazzling. There's always like some sparkling kind of dialogue that just lets you know how much of a sense of humor he's got, right? Uh, and, and this movie is just fascinating. It's so fucking... Uh, it's so meta in a lot of ways. Just the way the film is constantly letting you know... Oh, sorry, I'm talking about The Devil's Eye, the first film of these two. Uh they they there's this thing where he, he keeps on the, has this narrator character that keeps on telling you that this is the first act and the first act's over now and this is where our characters are at and it's a comedy reminding the audience over and over again literally reminding them that it's a comedy i think that's kind of hilarious uh i love this is a don juan story essentially it's a story of the devil who uh has a um a sty in his eye and because there's this woman on earth who is about to get married and she hasn't been defiled yet. And so he thinks is wrecking his disposition in hell. And so he's, he wants to send someone to earth to make sure she gets defiled before she's married. Otherwise, heaven will rejoice too much. So he sends Don Juan. And uh, I always loved Don Juan stories. I saw a Don Juan opera when I was in high school with a girl I was dating and was really captivated by the story. Uh, although I don't remember it offhand, you know, in great detail, I do remember really, really liking it. And I think at some point I tried to do my own bad version of that story in, in my high school years as a writer. Uh, I didn't nothing ever happened with it, obviously. The opening conversation between the devil and his minions is, is really hilarious. Uh, you know, marriage is hell's mainstay, one of them says. I love the debate over what the follow would be if this woman isn't defiled before she's married. It's a bizarre and it's a really delightful comedy. I mean, I love the premise of this movie. It was, it was sweet and fun and simple. Uh, it's surprisingly light for Bergman. I was definitely not familiar uh, with his comedies before starting the deep dive into this box set. So it's been kind of a pleasant surprise in some cases. Um, Bergman made this film... Apparently, uh, around the same time he made The Virgin Spring, and he thought he should do it because doing a comedy would offset any losses that The Virgin Spring had. He didn't expect it to make any money, and of course he was wrong. It was the reverse. It was, that, was, that was the movie that became the hit, and this one, I think, 
probably just came and went. Uh, although it's delightful, and it and it's got that kind of really high concept premise that makes you makes me kind of surprised that Woody Allen didn't do his own version of this movie, uh, given how much he had an affinity for for Bergman, uh, because it feels like he would be uh, the perfect uh, the perfect person to kind of tell a, a more nuanced comedic version of this. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of shocked that he never did. And then there's All These Women, uh, a movie that Bergman said was the worst film that Ingmar, uh, sorry, Bergman Ebert said that was the worst film that Bergman ever made. Uh, and he's probably right. It's it's not great. It's, uh, I mean, it opens with a great title card. It says, any semblance between this film and so-called reality has to be a misunderstanding. And, you know, that's fair. I don't know what he's trying to say with that opening, but he's kind of laying the gauntlet down and going, you can't judge me for this movie. I don't even give a shit. It's kind of what it feels like a little bit. He's fucking with the audience in kind of a really fun, interesting way. Uh, the colors here is very interesting. It's probably the saving grace of the film. It makes everything feel very theatrical, even the staging of it. I mean, the acting here is big compared to his other comedies. Everything is heightened. It's overlit, uh, except for like it has this great... Juxtaposition of this uh, this black and white Codeman Eastman Kodak kind of uh, quality to it uh, in in certain moments that's really really fun like uh, when they did the censorship warning about the lovemaking and then they they cut to the black and white of them just dancing uh, the music's over the top too it's jazzy it kind of reminds me of Woody Allen a little bit you know this is definitely unlike anything Bourbon's made before. If you showed me this without knowing, I would not believe that he was the filmmaker behind it. Uh, it's just so out of left field for him. Uh, and I won't lie, it's like I, my brain went in and out of it. I didn't really enjoy this movie. I think there's a lot of interesting things going on. I think it's fascinating that he made it. But uh, I can't say that I really, really dug it. And you know, if I wasn't watching it for, for the purpose of studying Bergman more, I probably would have given up on it at some point. So yeah, two Bergman comedies. Uh, glad I watched them. I might. I, I I wouldn't be shocked if at some point I uh, I revisited um, the Devil's Eye because I like the premise a lot. I think there's there's some stuff to mine from there. Uh, but I, I don't foresee myself ever needing to uh, see all these women again. Next up, I've got another double feature of Sawdust and Tinsel and The Right. Okay, so I just finished the double feature that is um, Sawdust and Tinsel and the Right, which was later, I think, released in America as The Ritual. At some point when it was theatrical, the right was originally made for Swedish television. Which is fascinating given the sexuality and nudity in the film. It's amazing that that was made for TV in the uh, in the late 60s. That's fantastic. So this is interesting. We get Bergman uh, doing two, two films very much about performance and actors. Uh, one from earlier in his career with Sawdust and Tinsel and then one from, from later on. And it's interesting, apparently, so so Sawdust and Tinsel was conceived 
at a time when Bergman was feeling like a failure. He hadn't really had a, a first major work yet. And in subsequent years, a lot of people, I think, consider Sadas and Tinsel his first major work. It, it's him starting to come into his own and starting to, to play with themes that would continue on later on. And there's something really beautiful about uh, the, these two characters. You get Albert and Anne, these circus performers who are just sick of leading the circus life. They're people who didn't feel like they fit into the regular world, and so they ran off to the circus. And now they want to run back to the regular world, but they find out that they don't really fit in there either. Uh, you know, they see themselves as artists and performers, but you know when they go to and, and they're but they're the sawdust and the tinsel is like, uh, you know, for for Albert it's his family and this normal life, and uh, and for Anne it's the theater and and proper actors, but they they look down on them, and so it's interesting these these two misfits that don't really fit in anywhere else. Uh, and apparently Bergman was inspired because he was turned down as being the uh, the director of a, of a th- theater in in his country at the time, and so it inspired him to write Sawdust and Tinsel. But then by the time he made the right, he was the, the director of that theater company. So that's, that's a fascinating bookend to this story. I, I really love the, the circus background. I love that Sawdust and Tinsel starts with this. Uh, his credit, I think, is a broadside ballad on film by Ingmar Bergman. It's a very unique description I have not seen seen anywhere else. So I really like Sawdust and Tinsel. I like that it started off a bit ridiculous, and it took these circus characters seriously, though. Uh, you know, these misfits who have run away because they didn't fit in. They want to get back in society, but the same problem remains, and they don't fit in. Where do they belong? They don't know. It's a bit haunting in the end, and it makes you ponder your, your own space in the universe where you do and don't belong. The ending's simple, and yet it's unsettling. You know, I can see why it's, it's called a ballad up front. I love the other circus guy, the guy with, uh, he had a bit of a, you know, a slower paced speech. I can't remember his name. He was a clown. We got that great flashback of him at the beginning. But this is a, this is a movie that's about people, you know, living with disappointment and, and struggling with the arts. And I think there's something really, really universal about that that I connect to on, on a deep level. And then we get The Right, which is not an easy film. Uh, it's interesting. This is coming later on. Bergman at this point is established as a master in cinema. And so he's really fucking playing around. And he, he's got that really harsh sex scene in there. And the perform, performances in this are amazing. Uh, but I, it, it's hard to grasp what he's really trying to get at here. It's just at least it wasn't apparent to me. And so while I, I admire the film, I didn't love it. Not the way that I really enjoyed Sawdust and Tinsel here. What, what's really solidifying for me with this centerpiece, too, uh, and, and the selection of films inside of it, is that it really displays for me the vastness of Bergman's work and, and, and how it goes from one spectrum to the other. You get these, this over-the-top comedy, or supposed comedy, with something like All These Women... Um, and then you get this really experimental film with the right. Uh, and then you see like him him starting to play around with ideas in Sawdust and Tinsel and, and have kind of what people are considering his first major work in subsequent years later. But then you see him firing on all cylinders with something like The Seventh Seal. So the centerpiece, too, really, really does show you kind of like you know, how far his over stretches in terms of tone and, uh, and talent. And I think that's a really fascinating 
connection here. So yeah, so this you know this double feature wasn't perfect perfect for me. I really like Sawdust and Tinsel. I think that's a film I would revisit. The Right, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, and it's a film that's unique for this edition. I don't think it's been released by Criterion before. So, uh, yeah, I do believe you can watch it on the Criterion channel, though, as well. I think all the the movies in the Ingmar Bergman cinema are. So if you want to save a few bucks and not pick up the, the big, giant box set, you can you can do that. But this booklet that comes with it is pretty, pretty amazing. It's full of great essays. So you might want it for that alone. Anyway, uh, next up, it's just one film on its own. What a break. Uh, I get to watch The Magician. So I just finished watching The Magician. This is a head fuck of a movie. Um, it was originally called Faces or The Face, I believe. Uh, yeah, Faces is a different movie of his, I, I think. Or maybe I'm getting it confused with something else. Anyway, what a bizarre movie. I mean, I think it's intended to be a bit of a dark comedy. Uh, and it's amusing in places. I don't know how funny it is. There's this... <laughs> crazy sequence at the very end when the police police chief or some similar type role comes back with like his posse of of uh of officers uh to this crazy score that Bergman's thrown in there uh yeah just a bonkers and then it comes back to that score at the very very end as uh, as they're leaving town and being escorted off to the palace for a performance that's that seems to save their lives yeah, I mean, this is a bizarre movie. So Max von Sydow has this amazing character. Uh, he, you know, he spends most of the movie not even talking and in this fantastic, not fantastic, but like kind of cheesy, awkward disguise of a kind of cliched magician with this pencil-thin beard, uh, a guy that doesn't speak. It's interesting. He and his his the rest of the the characters in this troupe. It's it's kind of this illusion between you know. How much are they putting on this act, and how much of them is real, and and just there's some just some really fun stuff going on in there. Because even when they do the performance later on in the movie, uh, they do that bit with the the levitating table, and the police chief comes over and exposes the trick to the audience, uh, which is meant to embarrass them, obviously. But then he embarrasses him right back by having his wife reveal truths about the police chief that are very awkward and uncomfortable in front of everybody. Um, but then he goes even one step further and starts just fucking with the people in the audience with these other tricks to the point where he, he fakes his own death and they perform an autopsy on him, cutting parts of his body off and then reappears to scare the living shit of the guy doing the autopsy. Uh, in a sequence that's, you know, pretty terrifying in, in some ways and interesting. It's not scary as an audience viewer, but you can sense the tension and what's interesting in the character. Uh, yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed that part of it. It starts off really strong uh, and it's really intriguing off the beginning with the, with the troop traveling along, coming ac- across Spiegel, the, the dying actor. Uh, it has this bit of a lull in the middle when they first get to, the, to this place where they're going to be doing their performance. And then they kind of settle in for the night and everyone starts fucking everyone else. And Two Ball 
who is kind of their manager or stage manager, uh, sleeps with the the cook who he ultimately ends up staying with and living with in the end, which is bizarre and fantastic. Yeah, it's an interesting movie. Uh, Woody Allen listed this as one of the, the five Bergman films that he would recommend for people who aren't familiar with him. I'm not quite sure why. Uh, I, I was reading in, in the giant book that comes with this uh, this box set, the Ingmar Bergman box set, that this is considered one of his most underrated masterpieces because it comes just before his Spider Trilogy and, uh, and just after... Um, Wild Strawberries and Seventh Seal, and so it got lost somewhere in the middle. I think it's an interesting movie. It's a fine movie. I, I don't think it's one of his best. I think um, it has problems with tone, and, and the, the middle isn't quite as interesting as the beginning and ending is. But uh, but I liked it enough. I think it's definitely um, strong. It's, it's focused in ways that sometimes Bergman movies aren't. Uh, yeah, ultimately, I, I liked it enough. You know, it's not my favorite by any means, but I thought it was intriguing. It was interesting seeing Max von Sydow play such a, a, a bizarre and kind of creepy character who then just becomes kind of a desperate man at the end uh, and a totally different character. That's That was fascinating. I think that's what I enjoyed the most was Max von Sydow just kind of embracing and enjoying the, the craziness of the part that he's been given. Uh, yeah, and next up we have uh, a double bill. I think it's the Magic Flute and After the Rehearsal, if I, if I am correct. All right, so I've just finished um, not quite a double bill of the Magic Flute and after the rehearsal. I watched them uh, a day apart. They're interesting. Uh, it's somewhat... It's weird. It feels like a departure for Bergman, and yet it's not at all, because he was... You know, we think of him, and history thinks of him, and the world cinema thinks of him as a film director, but he was, you know, he was always a working theater director and certainly uh, worked so much in television... And all three of these uh, blended and blurred together, but, you know, n- never probably so much than right here. Uh, both of these started off as works for television that were eventually played theatrically. Uh, I will say, I'm going to be honest off the bat, these are not my favorite uh, of Bergman's films. I found them really interesting and I thought that I liked the idea of them more than I liked the films themselves. Uh, I think what's interesting about The Magic Flute is, uh, I mean, first of all, I could not follow that story. <laughs> it's kind of nonsensical in a weird way. I don't get that the, the same young dude that's scared of uh, of a dragon or can't defeat a dragon is then sent, is then sent off to, uh, to rescue this woman. Uh, I don't know how the magic flute somehow helps him. Anyway, I digress. Uh, But what I really love and I think is interesting is the idea that it's not like Bergman has taken uh, this opera, the magic flute, and adapted it um, in a traditional sense where we take place inside of it. He's kept it in the theater, 
were watching a, uh, a stage production of the Magic Flute, and we start off on the overture watching the audience for a ridiculously, I mean, really, it's, it's almost 10 minutes. We're just looking at reaction shots of an audience watching the play. It's hypnotic, but it, you know, it tries the patience a little bit. Uh, it definitely sets the tone for the movie, but but it doesn't also. It, it's just interesting in that I love. What's really great is just the point of view of the magic flute, and uh, and the, and we get to do things that you don't get to do in theater. We get to see close ups. We get to see insert shots of items. There's uh, very early on we get an insert shot of a photograph, and uh, and the photograph is moving inside. Uh, stuff like that. We get to see behind the scenes. We get to see actors having a, a cigarette break. The, the, particularly the, the dragon having a cigarette break was pretty funny. You know, people walking around backstage waiting for their turns, playing chess. Just, you know, stuff you normally don't get to see. So it, it, it's a really fascinating concept. I think it's really interesting. Uh, I, I like it quite a bit. Uh, it thinks of it makes me think of something that I can do with uh, a play that I wrote and directed, you know, twenty years ago, uh, in, by way of a film adaptation that that gets me quite quite tickled. And then we have after the rehearsal, which uh, also all takes place on on a theater, uh, seemingly real time. Uh, with just three actors, much simpler, obviously, uh, and also made for television. And it, it's just a three-hander, and I, I love the idea of it. Again, I love the idea of it more than I love the film itself. I think uh, you know the acting is super powerful. I think that uh, the themes of a director who feels emotionless and is in love with actors because all act actors are our emotion. I think there's something really great and wonderful inside of that. Um, yeah. So I don't have too much more to say than that. I, I thought they were interesting. I think it was interesting that I discovered both of these at this time because I'm also planning this um, this this project that's uh, it's very small. It's kind of a two or three hander. Uh, so watching a film like that was interesting now uh not that it necessarily gave me any ideas but it just made me think uh yeah so we're getting close to the end of this centerpiece we just have two films left when we come back so stay tuned for the last two films the touch and the serpent's egg people are afraid to go out at night. The government doesn't know which way to turn. Something terrible is going on. Money is worth less and less. Do you recognize this man? Look at that picture. There is brutality and violence everywhere. Do you recognize it, Jim? And yet people act as if nothing has changed. Who the hell? All right, so for the final films of Centerpiece 2, we've got Bergman's only um, English-spoken films that I'm aware of anyway, Uh, The Touch and The Serpent's Egg. I thought I'd seen The Serpent's Egg before, 
but I don't remember it. Uh, I think it was in an old box set that I had on DVD, and either I never got around to it, or I totally forgot it, which I can probably get into why I might have totally forgotten it uh, in a second. Yeah, so uh, it, first it's nice just seeing him you know, play in English and also uh, getting some American actors into the mix. These films couldn't be more different in a weird way. Uh, and again, it just it starts to really reveal to me just how vast of a, of a filmography Bergman has when you really dive into it. Um, so, so the touch, I really liked it. I mean, I think it was underrated at the time, but it's it's a really simple love story. It's not even a love story. It's a weird kind of stalker story. It's 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 a really kind of fascinating uh, triangle film in a weird in a way. We got Elliot Gould. As uh, as the American coming in and trying to steal Max von Sydow's wife, who's played by, uh, Karen, played by B.B. Anderson, and uh, and it's interesting because Max von Sydow's character just comes plays you know plays it typical, cool, relaxed man of all seasons fashion, and Elliot Gould starts off as this you know really artistic and interesting guy that you can see why women would fall for but man does he ever become manic and crazy halfway through and you're kind of wonder why she's drawn to him and and that particular energy uh that's not to say it doesn't work it works really well and there's some scenes in here that are just really gut-wrenching and and affecting um really strong performances throughout and simple and it just it's another great example of how much Bergwing can do with very little uh I, i really really enjoy the touch and, uh, and I think I'll definitely be revisiting it at some point. Uh, on the other hand, we get uh, The Serpent's Egg with David Carradine. And what a bonkers film. So, so I guess what happened was Bergman was having some potential tax problems back in Sweden. And so he fled to Germany and made this film there. And this is his only Hollywood film that he made completely in English. Uh, there's, even, even in The Touch, he had... Um, some some scenes where the Swedish actors, when they're only speaking to each other, would, as you normally would, speak in Swedish, and uh, and those scenes are subtitled, uh, which makes sense. But here it's 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 kind of uh, more North American, where everyone's speaking English with accents, um, and and I mean the film is seen through Derek, David Carradine's point of view, so you know we can justify that. This movie, The Serpent's Egg, just feels like it's a. A shitty Bond movie to be to be completely kind. Uh, it's not terrible. I, I liked it enough. I was interested and intrigued by it. David Carradine is somewhat interesting in this part. Liv Ullman is here as well, but sadly she's got very little to do. Um, the movie just kind of it starts off as you know this kind of exploration of the, as to this guy who finds his brother having killed himself. And then into how he's going to deal with that. But then by the end, it, it's about like sociological experiments with Nazis. And yeah, the whole thing is just a bit bonkers and over the top for Bergman in particular. Uh, I can only guess at what he was trying to do here other than maybe try to appeal to a more mainstream audience. But it, it's bar- bizarre to me that... Uh, he thinks this would be uh, the way it wished to do so. Anyway, it was a film that was uh, kind of critically panned and 
you know, rightfully so to some extent. Uh, again, really interesting to watch him work in English. I kind of, I mean, I would have loved to see him do more and, and do more straight dramas or comedies in, in our language uh, because I think he could have been a lot more accessible to North American audiences other than the people that, that seek out foreign films. Uh, but he didn't, and so here we are. We're left with what we got uh, of these two English-speaking films. So, yeah, so that's it. I mean, I thought this was a really interesting um, variety of films in this set piece. <clears throat> Let me just go through it again. Like, we... we it's kind of all over the place uh, with these films. I'm just kind of brazing through. There's some... I mean, I think it's it's kind of... With the exception of, you know, stuff like... You get The Seventh Seal, which is just, without a doubt, one of Bergman's best films. Um, uh, but then you get a lot of... not I don't want to call them stinkers, but you get to see him really fucking around with form and playing with different stuff. With, uh, you know, The Devil's Eye and all these women. Just going really broad and, 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 and going with comedy that doesn't quite work. So I think in this set piece, we're definitely seeing, you know, a really varied uh, mix of stuff and, and getting to see him be really experimental and trying some, some stuff throughout here. Uh, I think the most successful is definitely his first with Seventh Seal. And then the rest are kind of just fascinating experiments. Uh, it's probably, for me, the weakest selection of these films so far as a whole. Uh, though definitely interesting seeing what he's playing upon. You know, Bergman's kind of like a pizza. Even when, you know, it's not at its best, it's still worth checking out. He's always got something going on, even if the films themselves aren't entirely successful. Uh, so yeah, so thanks for sticking with me through Centerpiece 2. We've got one more Centerpiece that'll be coming up sometime in the upcoming months. I'm probably going to take a little bit of a break from Bergman. Um, the next centerpiece is seven films. And then the last one is just really a deep dive into Fanny and Alexander, which Bergman did as a TV series and a movie. And there's a, there's a feature length making of as well that I'll probably include my thoughts on. So those will be coming up sometime in the upcoming months. So stay tuned for those. If you're into, uh, this kind of critique of a foreign filmmaker. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's Black Hole Films is a proud member of the That Shelf Podcast Network. You can listen to other episodes of our show and other That Shelf podcasts on thatshelf.com. Please subscribe, leave comments, spread the word, do all the things that let others know you like the show and how they can check it out. You can find me on Twitter, at Lon Jeremy, and go to Facebook and join the group Black Hole Films. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a